Welcome to studentofthebible.com. I'm your host, Renee, and I'm a Bible student. I'm glad you are, too. Thank you so much for joining. Pray for discernment and ask God to show you how you can share this information with others and be a blessing. Welcome to our third and final podcast on the story of Jonah. What a crazy story of unexpected twists and turns. Let's review what we've learned so far. Our very short book of Jonah is found in the Old Testament, tucked between the books of Obadiah and Micah. And although it's only four chapters, it's filled with so much symbolism, and it's really linked to the rest of the Bible in a brilliant way. Jonah was a prophet of Israel in the mid-700s B.C., now, we know he had some previous success by reuniting the ancient kingdom of Israel to the geography seen during the reign of Solomon, but apparently these boundaries were short-lived. In our last two podcasts, we were introduced to Jonah, who is mentioned in 2 Kings and also by Jesus in the New Testament. And we discovered that while Nineveh is forgiven in the story of Jonah, spoiler alert if you haven't read ahead, they turn away from God and another prophet named Nahum is sent to try to get them to repent just a hundred years after Jonah. We've seen how in the story of Jonah, things are literally turned upside down. Those that are pagan and therefore unbelievers act nobly and turn toward the Lord. And Jonah a prophet of the Lord, time and again, does the exact opposite. God, in the beginning of our story, had asked Jonah to go to Nineveh and preach against it because of its wickedness. And yet, instead of following God's command, Jonah literally flees in the opposite direction towards a worldly place called Tarshish, where people would obtain gold and other items. Metaphorically speaking, to create their own Eden. In other words, demonstrating that they didn't need God because the Eden is where we go to encounter God. So really, an attempt to create our own Eden is in essence saying we don't need God. Jonah takes a ship to get to Tarshish and is surrounded by pagan sailors. Now, we scoff at the ridiculous thought that he actually thought he could escape from God. When the sailors are faced with a terrible storm, they know that it must be from the God, and they fear him, and the Bible says that they offer sacrifices to him and make vows to him. We do not read that Jonah does this. In fact, Jonah in this story is actually an anti-prophet. Prophets would often offer their life for the sacrifice of others. The irony is that Prophets would sacrifice their life to save the rebellious. But here, it's the prophet who is rebellious, and his metaphorical death actually brings salvation to the sailors. To quote the Bible Project authors, Jonah's rebellion becomes the source of his death, not the rebellion of others. Jonah's rebellion becomes the instrument of God's purpose to save the sailors. Now, this is actually a major theme in the Bible, the whole idea of God's purpose and its relationship to our evil. We'll see again later in the story of Jonah that 
no human can escape God's purpose. Think of the story of Exodus, for example, with the evil Pharaoh. Even human evil will be used by God for his purpose. Jonah never owns up to his sin, but he tries to run from it. Our response to sin needs to be confess it, not run from it or try to reverse it in our own schemes. But we need to bring it to God, trusting that it will serve God's purpose, even though it most likely we would think would be the exact opposite of his purpose. Since God is slow to anger and merciful, rather than literally killing Jonah, the Bible says that God provided a great fish to swallow Jonah and that Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. The three days in the depths of the sea in the belly of a great fish, well, that symbolized Jonah's death. And so the reader is asked to reflect on other times that three days and three nights is mentioned in the Bible. The phrase is actually mentioned 20 times. The authors of the Bible assume that their listener knew the scriptures because they were told to meditate on them day and night. And so this concept of three days and three nights, the reader would be assumed to know, is typically used to describe a time of suffering or testing or near death or an ominous journey. You know, we really see in the story of Jonah how awesome God is. He commands the animals. Normally, being swallowed by a giant fish would cause sure and certain death. But God can use this fish as a vehicle for humbling that actually leads to new life. Once again, we see that when Jesus talks about Jonah being in the belly of the fish for three days, Jesus is referring to the fact that the fish should have been an instrument of death, just like Jesus is foreshadowing the cross, which was also supposed to be an instrument of death. But God will use it as an instrument of salvation and new life. Now, after chapter two, the reader is really left wondering if Jonah is going to be transformed at all. Passage through the waters is a big theme in the Bible, but we know the story of Jonah is filled with surprises, so we tend to be a little suspect of Jonah's change of heart. Now, we read that Jonah prayed to God from the belly of the fish. We referred to it as a poem or a song, and it's interesting that almost this whole song is quoting from the Psalms. So we're reminded that this is a prophet of God and he knows the scripture. Remember this because there will be a certain irony to this fact later. So what's God's reaction to this song? Well, the author tells us in Jonah 2.10, the Lord commanded the fish and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. <laughs> so much irony and humor. What a wild reaction to Jonah's prayer. Since God knows our heart, I'm wondering if the vomiting was a reaction to Jonah's insincerity. We read in chapter 3 that the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Now we're thinking, okay, surely Jonah has learned his lesson and he'll do what God asks of him. 
Hooray! We read in Jonah 3, 3, that, quote, Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and he went to Nineveh. But then we hear something interesting and we're not sure why the author has given us this particular detail. He says, now, Nineveh was a very important city. A visit required three days. Hmm. In other words, the city had grown so large that it would literally take three days to cover all of it. But then the book of Jonah says, on the first day Jonah started into the city, he proclaimed 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned. Okay, a few things cause us to pause here. First, it seems Jonah was pretty anxious to deliver this information and he spills it when he's barely into the city. Then he delivers a punishment. 40 days and Nineveh will be overturned with no possible alternative. This doesn't sound like God, does it? He didn't even mention God. Usually there is a do this or else this will happen. Repent, turn back, worship the Lord, change your ways or else calamity will fall upon you. Huh. So because of Jonah's character up to this point, we're really left to wonder about this message. The author is intentional about giving us very little information, but the information given is extremely interesting. One day's journey, a message of doom with any chance of repentance. We read on. The very next line says, the Ninevites believed God. They declared a fast and all of them from the greatest to the least put on sackcloth. When the news reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. Then he issued a proclamation in Nineveh. By decree of the king and his nobles, do not let any man or beast, herd or flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. Once again, we see pagan people, this time the Ninevites, earlier it was the sailors, who repent from their sins because they believe God is the God. Notice the way that they act. They fast and they wear sackcloth, which was often made of black goat's hair. So it was very itchy and scratchy and they sit in the dirt. Okay, what's up with that? Well, it's an act of humility, basically acknowledging they're no better than dirt and they deserve death for their actions. It was an act of humility. And you see hyperlinks to other times in the Bible where the Bible mentions people doing things like this, like King Hezekiah, King Ahab, the elders of Jerusalem, Daniel. And in the book of Revelation, it says there are two witnesses who do this. So then we start to wonder, was Jonah just being lazy, only walking one day's journey into the city? Or was this quick reaction from the Ninevites up positive indication of their conviction to really change their ways and therefore there was no reason for Jonah to venture further into the city. From the king on down, 
They were all fasting and repenting. Remember that the author does not waste words, but the words he uses are all very important. We just learned that Jonah spent three days in the fish, right? And then was restored. We learned that to adequately visit Nineveh, it would take three days. So we start thinking, three days, and then they would have a chance at salvation. So is Jonah shortchanging them? The Bible Project authors remind us that this is why this part of the Bible is referred to as meditation literature. We are supposed to meditate on it and read it again and again so more things jump out at us. So what impresses us at this point in the story is that the king does not know if there is any way to save themselves. Jonah has given them no alternative. But the king still acts faithfully, doesn't he? Even though he's a pagan and unfamiliar with the attributes of God being slow to anger. The Bible tells us many times, including in Exodus and Numbers, that, quote, the Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but he will by no means clear the guilty visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. Now, the author doesn't make us wait long to see what God does with the Ninevites' repentance. Chapter 3, verse 10, he says, When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. Again, we rejoice. Non-believers have become believers. This is the message of the gospel. Ooh, but chapter 4 takes a dark turn. Remember, this is an upside-down story. Jonah the prophet is actually an anti-prophet. In other stories of prophets, when the prophet is successful, oh my gosh, there's much rejoicing. We know from the Bible that what a prophet says happens actually happens, then he's a true prophet. But here, ironically, what Jonah said didn't happen, did it? But we should rejoice that the Ninevites repented and God did not destroy them. Jonah should have been happy. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong. And the author tells us, he became angry. It says in Jonah chapter 4, verse 2, he prayed to the Lord. Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? This is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love. A God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it's better for me to die than to live. Oh, Jonah. Jonah's not pleased that God is a gracious and forgiving God. He sees God's forgiveness as evil. Well, now we learn why Jonah fled to Tarshish in the first place. It's because he knew God was a merciful and forgiving God, and he didn't want God to forgive the Ninevites. Now, the reader or listener of this story would see immediately the 
irony of this statement. The whole reason that Israel is still around and kicking is because of God's mercy and forgiveness. They have royally messed up continually, and God has forgiven them time and time again. Jonah, as a prophet of Israel and as someone who knew the scriptures, was very aware of this fact. It's just that the truth was very inconvenient for Jonah right now, wasn't it? Wasn't it just a few days ago, though, that God's mercy saved Jonah's sorry behind in the belly of a fish? So Jonah's happy to receive God's mercy for himself, but he's less happy when God doles it out to others. Huh. In this last chapter, we're going to hear Jonah say two times that he wants to die. But it's not the sacrificial request that prophets make to offer their life as a ransom for many. Instead, it's an almost comical request that he doesn't want to live any longer in a world where God forgives his enemies. This dramatic response is designed to remind the reader of kind of the ungrateful reaction of the Israelites. Remember when they're in the desert and they dramatically say they'd rather return to slavery in Egypt than be dying in the desert. And of course, they are saying this literally right after God just saved them by parting the sea and allowing them to walk on dry land. Do you see the parallels? I mentioned that this small little story of Jonah unites really all of the Old Testament story. We're seeing Cain's character. Remember, Cain and Abel, very first children of Adam and Eve in the Bible. He's angry when God chooses Abel's offering over his. In fact, Cain became so angry over God's choice that he kills his brother and is then banished to the east. Cain rejected God's protection and he built his own city. Well, this parallels Jonah being so angry over God's decision that he desires his own death. Since, as the Bible Project authors put it, Jonah goes east of the city, builds his own shelter, and then, since death of his enemies is no longer an option, Jonah rejects God's mercy on his enemies and desires his own death. Philip Carey, who wrote a book called Jonah, and I quoted from it uh, during the last podcast, he has this to say about how Jonah reacted. Justice is a good thing. We need to be clear where Jonah gets it wrong. It's not that we should never desire justice. It is good news when an oppressor is toppled, a terrorist caught, a torturer brought to justice. The Lord indeed does take vengeance on his enemies, for he is the enemy of all who destroy his world. But the danger is, the author says, that instead of simply rejoicing at the vindication of the oppressed, we self-righteously identify ourselves as the oppressed, taking pity on ourselves and not on others. They continue. In our imaginations, the Lord becomes a weapon in our campaign to destroy our enemies and 
instrument of our own revenge rather than the righteous judge of all the earth, unquote. That's convicting. Be careful what you wish for because, honestly, we all deserve God's wrath. Now, we have a really strange ending to this Jonah story, as if this whole story wasn't bizarre enough. Jonah goes out of the city, presumably to watch the God show of God's wrath on the city from a safe distance. And the author tells us he builds a shelter. We also learn that God provides a vine to provide shade for Jonah while he waits. Oh, the vine makes Jonah really happy. It's actually the only time in the story we hear that Jonah was really happy. But then we read that at dawn the next day, God provides a worm that eats the vine, completely destroys it. God then provides a scorching east wind, and Jonah grows faint, the author says, from the power of the sun. Now, the author doesn't tell us what happened to his man-made shelter. But there again is a bit of irony since Jonah's shelter, again an attempt at creating his own Eden, didn't last. And now this is the second time when Jonah says he wants to die and that it would be better for him to die than to live. So God asked Jonah directly for a second time, do you have any right to be angry? But this time God adds, do you have any right to be angry about the vine? Jonah reminds me of a petulant child when he responds to God, I do. I am angry enough to die. <laughs> I just love this. Now we get to what I think is actually the best part of the story. First, notice how patiently God speaks back to Jonah. I would not have been so calm. But the Lord said, You have been concerned about this vine, though you didn't tend it or make it grow. It literally sprang up overnight and died overnight. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left and many cattle as well. Should I not be concerned about that great city? Wow, that's how the story ends, with God asking Jonah a rhetorical question. Should I not be concerned about that great city? The awesome, amazing, and patient love of God. God knows that Jonah's camped outside the city to watch his enemies burn, and yet God provides Jonah with shade. This draws the reader to Psalm 121 which says that the Lord watches over you. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun will not harm you by day, nor the moon by night. God is trying to teach Jonah this. The worm that God sent reminds us of the worms that were sent to eat the manna that the Israelites stored up instead of trusting that God would provide for them their daily bread. The vine represents the Eden blessing. Metaphorically, it's there to deliver Jonah from his 
sinful and distorted view of what evil is because he thinks God's mercy on his enemies is evil. Well, the story of Jonah is the story of the Old Testament and of Israel. When Israel trusts God, God protects them. When Israel does not trust God, God takes things away. Remember how Jonah was quoting scripture when he was saying his prayer? Well, this brings us to the irony in the New Testament of when Jesus sees right through the Pharisees who also quote scripture, yet have hardened their hearts to loving tax collectors and prostitutes. Did you notice how God mentioned not only the 120,000 people in Nineveh, but also the fact that there were animals? You know, we serve a loving God who loves and cares for all of his creation, including the animals. Isn't it interesting how God uses plants and animals in this Jonah story? You know, this reminds us of the hope we have in the fact that one day, God will restore all of creation, and that includes the animals as well. The story of Jonah presents a great news for us and a challenge for us. The great news is that even when Jonah kept making bad choices, God was tender and merciful and patient. He kept pursuing him. The good news is that God is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The challenge for us is to make sure we don't make God into our own personal tool for revenge. You know, we're all self-righteous, and we all think we're more deserving of mercy than our enemies. But when we do this, it makes us no better than that brood of vipers, the Sadducees and Pharisees, who also thought they were on the winning team and had the inside scoop on salvation. Remember, we're all sinners in need of salvation. I'm going to end with this final thought from Paul in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 9. For it's by grace you have been saved, through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God not by works, so that no one can boast. Have a blessed day.